Now this evening we want to look at the third chapter of Jeremiah, a chapter which continues the theme that has been described in chapter 2, namely the sinful idolatry of the nation Israel-Judah. Now in this third chapter, he continues his uh, condemnation against the nation for that vile, adulterous, and whorish practice. But he does so uh, with a slight difference, and we'll notice that uh, as we approach this outline that I've given you on the first page of the handout. So what I'd like to do is establish the units or the narrative blocks in this chapter. As you scan the verses that are indicated, and so we'll go through and establish the paradigm that I believe is outlined by the text, and then we'll take a look at the narrative or the story that that paradigm is portraying or describing. So let's begin with uh, verse 6 and verse 11. And when we're looking at blocks or units, uh, I trust that you've learned by now that we're looking for patterns of parallelism. So as you look at verse 6 and verse 11, is there anything there that looks like a duplication to you? That is true. But you want more than that. Something a little more obvious than that. Do hmm. you see it, Terry? The Lord spoke to me. The Lord said to me, correct. You will notice that both of those passages are bracketed by that phrase, the Lord said to me. So that's what we're looking for, the uh, frame of this section 6 to 11, emphasizing the word of the Lord. Now, in verses 12 to 20, we once again want to look for a pattern of duplication. Just looking at 12 and 20. Do you see anything that strikes you there, Robert? Okay, it's verses 20 and what? Verse 12 and 20. Comparing those two verses. Well, they're both talking about returning. That is true. There's something that is precisely the same in both verses. Declares the Lord. Declares the Lord. Once again, we have this reference to God's word. So declares the Lord occurs in verse 12, and it occurs again in verse 20. It occurs several times in between, but in 12 and 20, it's forming a bracket or a uh, frame of a narrative unit. 
Now, verse 21 stands by itself. I'll talk in a moment about the narrative pattern there. And the same is true of verse 22, lines A and B. But beginning with verse 22C, which would be the third line of verse 22, and concluding with verse 25, there's a phrase that is duplicated in both of those verses, in both of those from, from in 22C and following and in 25, uh, that forms the bracket of this last unit. You see that, Terry? The Lord our God. Very good. All right, so we have from 6 to 11 a frame and a narrative uh, inside that frame. From 12 to 20, we have a frame declares the Lord and a narrative inside that unit. 21 and 22a and b are uh, uniquely uh, short narrative units, but then we have a concluding uh, a narrative unit 22C through 25D, the Lord our God. So if you've made notes on your outline, you now have the uh, frame brackets of the unit. Now let's take a look at the narrative inside those units. Now you'll notice the blank lines that I've indicated uh, beside the word narrative uh, as you go down the page. And I'm going to give you uh, terms uh, for those lines so that you can fill them in easily. You won't have to try to read my mind. Uh, But at any rate, I'll go back over them after we uh, give you the uh, outlines. And for the first uh, narrative section, verses 6 to 11, deception, which is a word that appears in verse 10, and perversion. So you might want to write on those blank lines, deception and perversion. Now, between verses 12 and 20, I've placed four blank lines. And I want you to label those, the first line, invitation. Then the second blank line, gracious declaration. The third blank line, eschatological transformation. And the fourth blank line, the phrase, in those days, which appears in verses 16 and 18. Now, in some ways, uh, that's a a replication of the eschatological transformation, which occurs in those days. The phrase in those days is an eschatological reference, but I'll uh, I'll expand upon that uh, later on, but let's get the terminology down. Now, the short narrative in 21, the two lines there that are blank opposite verse 21's narrative. First of all, supplication, which is a word that appears in that verse 
and perversion, a word which also appears in that verse. Now, to 22a and b, another very short narrative unit. The first blank line, invitation, and the second blank line, gracious declaration. You will notice that those two words also match the first two lines of the narrative unit 12 to 20. We'll comment more upon that in a moment. Now, the next blank line, which is set off to the left above four lines below it, just above 22 C to D, that that blank line is a header for this last unit. In other words, it's like a heading for what's going on. And the word that heads this section is effectuation, effectuation or effectual realization. In other words, something is taking effect in verses 22c through 25. And we'll want to look at that later on. Now, the first blank line under effectuation is the phrase, this day, in verse 25. You'll notice that it is a match with those days in verses 16 and 18 above. The second blank line, we come in response to the invitation. We come. The third blank line is the line of God's grace. Here it is, the Lord God is our salvation. Verse 23, gracious character of the Lord God, the Lord our God. And the last blank line there in that unit 22C to 25 is shame backslash humiliation. Shame backslash humiliation. In fact, the word shame is used and humiliation is used in that uh, section. And you may want to put underneath it in parenthesis, exaltation, exhilaration, which is a contrastive paradigm. And I'll describe that in more detail uh, when we start to fill out the narrative. All right, now why have I indicated that these are narrative units because each of these blocks or units has a story. It's reflecting some description of the story of Israel and Judah. And so we want to examine what it is that the narrative tale or the narrative story is in those units. And you'll notice that we have perversion in verse 6 to 11 on one of those lines, and we have perversion in verse 21. So there is a relationship between the narrative in 6 to 11 and the narrative in verse 21. 
Then we have uh, invitation and gracious declaration in the first two lines between 12 and 20, and that repeats itself in 22a and b. So we have, again, a relationship, actually a parallel relationship between the block of 12 to 20 and the material in 22a and b. All right, now, as you scan or as you look at verses 6 through 11, what is the narrative or what is the story which is being described in those verses? Something's being said in those verses about a sister. Who is this sister, okay? Israel. Israel is a sister, and Israel has another sister. Who's the other sister? Judah. Judah. All right, so we have sister relationship. That is Israel and Judah being described in familial terms, one sister over against another. Now, this uh, one sister, verse 8, was sent away and given a writ of divorce. Terry, what sister was that? It was sent away. Uh, Israel. Israel was sent away and given a writ of divorce, meaning what? Meaning that uh, she had... She had, all right. So the writ of divorce was what? What's the divorce do? Separating. Severs the bond, all right. Now, when did this happen? When was Israel sent away? Uh, I think approximately a hundred years before. And who took her away? Uh, Assyria. Assyria took her away. And do you remember the year? No. Okay, do you remember the year? I think I do. 722. 722. So this is a reference to the destruction of the northern kingdom. The fact that he was sent away for her sins. God broke relationship with her. He cut her off. He severed the bond. He (laughs) dismissed her. Uh, from having any relationship with him and uh, gave her a bill of divorce. Now, the grounds for that dismissal. What was the ground for that dismissal? Cheryl, what was the ground for that dismissal? Her faithlessness. Faithlessness meaning what? They no longer honored God. True, because they were doing what? What specifically were they doing? They were worshiping idols. How were they worshiping it? Any. How were they worshiping the idols? They were put, being put before... The idols were put, being put before God. That is true. They were substituting in the place of God. Robert, how were they worshiping these idols? Well, it was out in the open. I mean... It was out in the open... How were they worshiping the idols, Terry? Uh, 
making sacrifices. What's going on in verse 6? Terry? She went up to every hill under every green tree and was a harlot there. What's that mean? What's he describing? Okay, what's he describing? They were doing uh, prostitution for the idol. What idol? Is this Baal? Baal and others, yes. They were practicing sacred prostitution. Literally, what they are doing is being whores. They are being both male and female whores. They are using uh, sex as an object of devotion and religious ritual, combining it with a form of idolatry. Well, the worship of sex is, in fact, a kind of idolatry. As the author of Proverbs, chapter 6, verse 32, says, is also stupidity as members of our secret service are now learning. So this worship was indeed a perversion. That's the reason I've labeled this part of the narrative up there. I gave you that word perversion. God, what God intended to be a devout and chaste and faithful devotion and expression of union and loyalty. So we say a marriage with him has been perverted. It's been completely corrupted and turned against him because others have been substituted for it. In fact, other objects, other individuals, other bodies have been substituted in the place of God's invisible spirit. All right, now, Israel received the consequences of that idolatrous, harlotrous, whorish idolatry. She was sent away, 722 B.C., sent away into captivity. Her city, her capital, Samaria, was destroyed. Uh, The Assyrians displaced her, removed her, uh, in fact, brought new, uh, new nations and new people to settle in the provinces of Israel and Samaria. Now, what did Judah do? What did Judah do? Robert? Same thing, but they didn't uh, learn from the northern kingdom. Correct. They did not learn from the consequences of what had happened to the northern kingdom. In fact, they imitated their sister to the north with faithless treachery, doing the same thing that Israel had done. That is, pursuing the uh, uh, whorish and uh, uh, use of prostitution in idolatry and becoming a harlot also. Verse 8. Now, in verse 10, God says that Judah practiced deception. And in verse 11 says that Israel was more righteous than treacherous Judah. What does he mean by Judah practiced deception? What do you think, Cheryl? I think they were they were trying to cover up their um, acts of um, unfaithfulness. How how would they be covering it up? In, in other words, they weren't open about what they were doing. They were trying to conceal what they were doing. 
pretty hard to do it when you're doing it in open, high places. So, no, it wasn't that they're trying to hide it from view, so to speak. What deception is involved here, Robert? Uh, what comes to mind here is uh, the New Testament uh, phrase uh, where Jesus calls them uh, whitewashed sepulchers. Okay. Meaning? <laughs> In this case? They, they kept all the outward uh, folder uh, to make it look, look right. Well, uh, uh, is, is there outward faulty wall that looks right if you're practicing prostitution in a sanctuary or a shrine? Uh, it doesn't look like they were trying to hide that. <laughs> so what's the deception? Terry, what's the deception? Weren't they combining it with the Lord's? Worshiping the Lord. Yes, what do we call that word when you try to combine the worship of God with some other kind of idolatry? What type of religious activity is that? The word is syncretism, okay. putting together two incompatible religions. So they were pretending to call God their father. Notice verse 19. They were pretending, actually, verse 4 up above, they were pretending to call God their father, but in fact, they were practicing deception. As uh, Robert suggested, they were whited sepulchers. They were doing just the opposite, pretending to be faithful worshipers of God, and yet worshiping God under the form of Baal and idols, etc., which was deceitful. So, in other words, there's falsehood in their worship. They pretend to be, shall we say, believers in the Lord God, they act quite the opposite. But why then does he say in verse 11 that Israel was more righteous than Judah? Okay, what do you think about that one? I don't know. I just wonder if um, Judah should have learned from what happened to Israel. Good, there's one point. Correct. One point is that they should have observed what God had done in judgment to the northern kingdom almost a hundred years before. In fact, a little more than a hundred years before. You notice verse 6 that this uh, narrative is coming in the days of Josiah. And Josiah is living about a hundred years after the destruction of the northern kingdom. So that certainly had a good long time to take the lesson to heart, so to speak, that if you practice harlotry and adultery of idolatry and whorish worship of God or other gods, then consequences are going to come. And those consequences did come. So you would think they said, well, we ought to be a little more careful. Very good. Any other suggestion about why Israel might be more righteous than Judah? Um, I'm thinking of that message uh, in Revelation to the uh, Church of Laodicea where it says, I wish you were either hot or cold, but since you're lukewarm, I'm spitting you out. Uh, the deception part on Judah is sort of a lukewarm. They're mixing the two. 
whereas Israel was at least righteous in the fact that they abandoned everything completely. All right, uh, uh, I, I'll accept that. I, I need for you to to get onto one element that Judah has that Israel does not have. What what does Judah have that Israel does not have, Terry? Okay. But Judah had um, the uh, temple. They had the temple, didn't they? They had the Ark of the Covenant, which is mentioned later on in this passage. In fact, they had the throne of the Lord, which could be a symbol for the Ark of the Covenant, if you think of the cherubim sitting on the lid of the Ark and that being God's footstool. At any rate, this uh, fact that they had, at least in theory, the uh, priesthood and the sanctuary and the temple of the Lord would also mean that they are sinning against greater light. In that sense, then, Judah is more treacherous, more unrighteous than Israel to the north. All right, so this narrative is the narrative of Judah's deception and her perversion, in which she imitates her sister to the north and then becomes more unrighteous than she in that she prostitutes herself in, in the light of greater understanding, greater revelation, greater demonstration. It is a very serious thing to come to church and then play the white hood sepulcher. It is a very serious thing to be a member on the roll and then not to be interested in the truth or the depth or even the superficial pattern of the Christian faith. It's a very serious thing to do that because, in fact, you preach, you practice deception in so doing. You are playing a game. You are only uh, going through the motions. And this is the problem in Judah even before Josiah's Reformation. And this, com- this comment in verse 11 that God makes about Judah being more unrighteous may be a reflection upon the fact that Josiah's reform did not bring the great uh, change in behavior that he hoped. It certainly brought a change in behavior in him and in many people around him, including Jeremiah, but it did not bring necessarily bring what we might call a national reformation. Perhaps, perhaps. All right. So this story in verses 6 to 11 is the story of Judah's own perversion and deception and pattern of imitation of that perversion of the northern kingdom of Israel, which led to its destruction. Obviously, the conclusion is that Judah is headed for the same condemnation. It's not going to be the Assyrians. It's going to be the Babylonians eventually. But nonetheless, the same charge and judgment is being leveled against the southern kingdom. Any questions then upon that pattern in uh, verses 6 to 11? Now we come to verses 12 to 20. And the narrative 
that we've outlined there with uh, the labels, uh, invitation, gracious declaration, eschatological transformation, and the phrase in those days, which appears in verses 16 and 18. In these verses, we have the first glimmer of the eschatology of Jeremiah. That's the reason I've given you that label, eschatological transformation. Here in this section, the narrative changes from the deception and perversion of Israel, Judah, to God's uh, determination, God's uh, plan, God's intervention, God's uh, power to alter the situation in the future. And that alteration begins with that invitation to return, come back to the Lord, turn uh, or repent or turn back from your sin. And uh, in addition to that uh, assurance of an invitation to accept the returning sinful or faithless people, a underscoring of the gracious character of God in so doing. A gracious declaration. I am gracious. I will not be angry forever. All right. This is a, uh, a an indication of a future transformation. A transformation that will bring repentance and salvation. And that uh, eschatological transformation also includes a return to Zion, verse 14. A establishment of shepherds after God's heart, verse 15. A day in which the Ark of the Covenant will no longer be remembered. It will have been it will become passe. It will be of no importance or significance any longer. Verse 16. A day in which in Jerusalem they will call all nations to the throne of the Lord. Not just Israel, Judah, but all nations will come to that Jerusalem. And in those days there will be a new relationship, a new union. There will no longer be a schism between the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. The division that occurred on Solomon's death will be healed and the nations will be reunited. And in that day, verse 19, you will call me my father, not in deceit, not with deception, not with pretense, as in verse 4, but with genuine repentance, grace, salvation, sorrow, and restoration. All right, the key then to this narrative is the phrase, in those days, which appears in verses 16 and 18. These are the days in which God will do this. These are the days in which God will be gracious and draw them back. He will give them shepherds after his own heart. He will bring the nations to this Jerusalem and unite the, the divided kingdom, the fragmented and disrupted and divorced relationship between those two kingdoms, north and south, Israel and Judah. Those days will be the days of eschatological change. They will be the days of eschatological renewal. They will be the days of eschatological grace and salvation.
All right, now that narrative, you see, answers the narrative in verses 16, 6 to 11. There is a response on God's part to the egregious sin of the nation of Judah, even as it will in measure include the, the remnant of the nation of Israel as well as verse 18 points out. So this is a restorative This is a redemptive. This is an eschatologically redemptive declaration on God's part. But it is talking about what will happen in those days, in those future days, in those days when this will come to pass. Any questions about uh, that unit? I'll say some more things about some of the phrases in this section later on, but nonetheless, you have any questions about how this unit functions in the narrative? All right, now to verse 21. This is a short declaration of supplication and perversion. Those two words actually appear in the text. And you will notice that the word perversion is a word I used to describe the block, verses 6 to 11. There is then a relationship between the narrative in verses 6 to 11 and the narrative here in verse 21. How so? How are these two uh, units, that is verses 6 to 11 and 21, Parallel. Well, the key is that phrase on the bare heights. On the bare heights. What is going on on the bare heights and why are the heights bare? Yes. And now they're not doing that. No. Uh, it's because the heights have been defoliated. Bare means there is no vegetation upon them. Why? What God is the God of the rain and the storm? Baal. Baal is the god of the rain and the storm. And what have we learned about Baal back in verse 2, verse 3 of this third chapter? The showers have been withheld. There is no spring rain. Now to verse 21. There is no voice on the bare heights. All right, so God has taken away... The fertility of the land. He has brought, shall we say, dearth upon the land in measure. Uh, There is no uh, rain upon those hillsides, no showers to bring forth vegetation. They are bare and denuded, and consequently, there are cries of weeping upon those bare heights, weeping and supplications. 
Why? What are they crying for? Rain? Okay, what else? Baal, oh, hear us. Baal, oh, hear us. The echo of First Kings chapter 17 and 18. Well, yes, they are uh, crying out to Baal, not only to give uh, uh, rain and fertility, but they're crying out to Baal in their adoration of him as they prostitute themselves upon the bare heights because they have perverted their way. And so this pattern, which is being described in verse 21, is an expansion or actually summary of what's been going on in verses 6 to 11, namely the idolatrous and adulterous and sexually immoral worship of Baal and the fertility cult associated with him and the fact that that narrative has produced a perversion of supplication, a perversion of weeping and action, as a matter of fact. But the key, as I said, is the fact that those heights have become bare as a result of the judgment of God against the land. All right, so we've seen the relationship then between verses 6 and 11 and verse 21. This is a, shall we say, a parallel relationship. Now to verse 22 and the first two lines of that verse. Return, O faithless sons, I will heal your faithlessness. Return. That is an invitation, which is exactly what we saw at the beginning of verse 12. Return. Faithless Israel. In fact, he uses the same expression. You will notice in verse 14, faithless sons also appears as a duplication in that unit with faithless sons here in verse 22. So the return is an invitation which matches the invitation of that eschatological section, verses 12 to 20. And the second thing we notice in 22a and b is that he says, I will heal your faithlessness. How will he heal it? Because how will he heal it? Through his... Verse 12, he will heal it through his... How does God heal sin? Through his... Grace. Grace, yes. So, I will heal your faithlessness because I am a gracious God. He will do an act of grace in healing that faithfulness. He will take away the faithlessness and give what? By his grace. Selfish. Yes. What's he going to take away? I'm sorry. And what's he going to give? Grace. What's he going to give in relationship and parallel to what he takes away? Salvation. He's going to give what? I will take away your faithlessness and I will give you 
Faith, exactly. I will give you faith. Because faith is a gift of grace. Correct? If we believe, it is because of the grace of God. By grace are you saved, through faith. All right, so this is a gracious act on God's part, even as the invitation is a wonderful invitation. So we again notice the symmetry or the parallel between verses 12 and 20, God's gracious invitation, and 22 A and B, God's gracious invitation. And that leaves us with 22 C through 25 and the effectuation of uh, this entire narrative And I'll allow you to take a break. You can stand and stretch your legs and we'll come back and look at that narrative in a little more detail. All right, now turning to verses 22C through 25D. We've seen that we have two sections that are similarly linked, namely a condemnation section which indicates the perversion and deception of Israel and Judah in verses 6 to 11, followed by an invitation or grace section, in fact, eschatological invitation and gracious declaration in verse 12 to 20. In other words, God does not leave just the analysis of their sinful deception and perversion. He provides an invitation for a remedy, for redemption. And uh, that uh, follows uh, 6 and 11 is followed by 12 to 20. And then we find the same thing duplicated. In verse 21, we have a replay of the supplication perversion, a very brief Fashion, And now in 22 through and in 22 A and B, we have a repetition of that gracious invitation and declaration. Now, the, uh, the duplication or the symmetry is followed by this last unit, what we might call this fifth unit, in which we might ask, well, if God was an out an out. Analyzing their deception and perversion, their perverse supplication, if he was doing that uh, in, in double fashion, and he was also inviting them graciously to come to him to heal their faithfulness, to save them, did it ever come to pass? Did it ever happen? How did the people respond? Did they ever respond? Was it ever put into effect? Did this uh, realization become effectual? In other words, what God pledged or indicated he would do in his invitations and in his gracious declaration, did it ever, was it ever realized? Did it ever take effect? Well, who is it that is speaking in 22C and following? You notice in your versions, you may have quotation marks Around that that section, behold, we come to thee, for thou art the Lord our God. Who is speaking here? The people. It is the people. 
In other words, here is the response of the people to God's both condemnation and judgment and his declaration of grace and invitation. They are saying, we come to thee. So God's invitation is taking effect. In fact, his condemnation, his judgment, his indictment of their sinfulness is taking effect. They have been, uh, shall we say, cut to the heart and they are responding. So this response here is a response to the eschatological declaration. That is, it's a response to God's eschatological invitation and declaration of grace. They are saying this day, notice verse 25, this day, which matches in those days, that is in these future eschatological days, this days we come to you. This day we find you our salvation, verse 23. This day we acknowledge the shameful things that we have done. This day we are humiliated, verse 25. So this last section is indeed a wonderful testimony to the effectual working of that eschatological invitation, of that gracious declaration, of that plea on God's part in verses 12 to 22 and 21a and b for the nation to turn, to repent, to turn about, for sinners to turn, to repent, to turn about. In fact, they acknowledge that they come uh, out of their shame and humiliation to the one who will exalt them. You will be exalted to call me my father. You will be exalted to to come to the Jerusalem that has the throne of the Lord. You'll be exalted and exhilarated to know that the Ark of the Covenant is no longer necessary. Those days have passed. The contrast between shame and humiliation in verses 24 and 25 and the exhilaration and exaltation which is built into the eschatological proclamation in verses 12 to 20. All right, so this this chapter is wonderfully symmetrical. It is balanced. It moves from that general uh, condemnation of perversion in two times over to an emphatic underscoring of God's gracious eschatological declaration to turn around the uh, fortunes of these sinful people and to uh, uh, change their hearts and nature by his redeeming grace. All right, now, on the second page of your outline, I've made some... uh, Elaborate uh, details of the of the uh, uh, antithesis or the uh, uh, one side and the other of this eschatological effectuation. Notice the balance between the two columns when God asks them to return. In verse twelve, they declare, "We come." We, they declare we are returning in verse 22. When God says, I am gracious in verse 12, they acknowledge that salvation is in the Lord. They acknowledge that the act of grace is in God's saving character. 
When God says acknowledge your iniquity in verse 13, it is affected in that they say we have sinned, verse 25. When God says confess your transgressions in 13, they acknowledge that they confess their sin in verse 25. Notice this balance. In other words, this eschatological projection, which is actually transformation of heart and nature, It is something which is conformable to God's own character, to God's own being, to God's own heaven, to God's own dwelling place. This is coming to pass in this section in which they confess that the effect is taking. It is taking. It's it's like it's like an inoculation that's taken. In other words, what God has proclaimed is taking its effect in their confession, their acknowledgement. Now, notice uh, verse 13, the, the scattered favors that he talks about uh, in that uh, section. Uh, what are these scattered favors? My version has scattered favors. You have scattered your favors to the strangers under every green tree. What are these scattered favors? The sacrifices made to the idols. Not the sacrifices. Okay. They're prostitution. Yes, they're prostituting themselves. They are giving scattered favors. There's a favors of sexual uh, activity and, and relationship under every green tree. Now, notice what that parallels in verse 24. That is the shameful thing that consumed our labor. They're acknowledging that it was a shameful thing to do. In other words, to uh, to practice uh, uh, religious whoredom and prostitution was shameful. You acknowledge it. Okay, you have not obeyed in verse 13. We have not obeyed. They acknowledge in verse 25, the direct parallel. The exaltation and exhilaration is the imagery of the throne of the Lord, the nations coming to Jerusalem, the confession that they will call me my father in verse 19. That's the language of exaltation and exhilaration, which is matched by that acknowledgement of shame and humiliation in verse 24 and 25. Notice the antithesis, the the opposite balance between those two categories. Verse 17, God says that they will walk no more in the stubbornness of their evil heart. Well, in verses 22 to 25, we have a new heart in those who are confessing their sin, repenting of their iniquity, believing upon the Lord and trusting him for their salvation. This is a new heart that has come into the confession of the people at the end uh, in the effectual action of God's working uh, in their hearts. Verse 17 on the one side says they are stubborn. Verse 24 and 25 acknowledges that since our youth we have been doing this. Doing what? Practicing these shameful things. In other words, they are stubborn. They're acknowledging the stubbornness because they've been doing it since they were young people. Verse 18, Judah and Israel matches verse 24 and 25, our fathers, our fathers, meaning the ancestors of Judah and Israel, both nations. And finally, in verse 19, you will call God my father. And in verses 22, 23 and 25, they call God the Lord, our God. The effectuation then of this 
a wonderful eschatological projection and effectuation is accomplished in this chapter. You can call this chapter the gospel according to Jeremiah, for all the riches of the gospel of Christ are here. That is, the acknowledgement and condemnation of sin, the prostituting of ourselves to our own idols, our own worship of that which is more important to us than the Lord our God, and the shame that comes upon us in the humiliation of heart and soul and character, which is a consequence of that, and the gracious compact and declaration of God to say, to turn unto me, turn unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth. I will give you a new heart. I will give you, I will take away your shame. I will grant you the, uh, the, the name above every name so that you will be able to call me uh, your father, your heavenly father. You will be able to say Abba to me and you will call my son your great and glorious Redeemer. Benefit of this uh, section is for us as well as for that remnant that heard it and believed it and professed it even in the days of Jeremiah. This uh, passage is drawing us then into the eschatological mystery of the eschatological days, those days. Well, what days are they? Notice verse 15. They are the days of shepherds after my own heart. Where does he get that phrase? Shepherd after my own heart. Terry? David. From David. From 1 Samuel 13, verse 14, where David is promised as one who will come, who is after God's own heart. Now, who is this shepherd? Well, we notice that David in the in the Samuel projection is one after God's own heart. Turn to Jeremiah 23, verse 5. Let's start with verse 4. Jeremiah 23, verse 4. In verse 5, I will also raise up shepherds over them. Behold, the days are coming. There's that phrase, days again. The days are coming when I raise up for David a righteous branch. So who is this shepherd? This shepherd that is promised in chapter 3, verse 15, who is like, who is after God's own heart, like David of old is the David of new. He is the new David. He is the eschatological David of chapter 23, verses 4 and 5. And he will be the David that is promised by Jeremiah in the heart of the eschatological sections of this prophecy, chapters 30 to 33. Over and over again, in those chapters, there will be a promise of the David who will come. And so, this eschatological shepherd is an eschatological David who is one after God's own heart. In fact, he is the very heart of God incarnate. He is the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now, the other thing to note in verse 17 is that phrase, the nations, all the nations will be gathered to Jerusalem to the throne of the Lord. 
This is reminiscent of Isaiah chapter 2. Let's turn back to Isaiah chapter 2, verse 1 for a moment. A passage which is duplicated in Micah chapter 4, verse 1. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2. In the last days. What kind of days are those? Those last days. Okay, what kind of days are they? What kind of days are the last days? The days of salvation, or sometimes it means... True, true, I want one word. What kind of days are they? Oh, eschatological. They are the eschatological days. Once again, notice, we have this eschatological motif. In those days, in Jeremiah 3, 16 and 18, in the last days, in Isaiah 2, 2 and Micah 4, 1, Notice what he says, the mountain of the house of the Lord. Now, what's he talking about? The mountain of the house of the Lord. What city is he talking about? He's talking about Jerusalem, the house of the Lord. The The temple, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. Notice Jeremiah 3. Verse 17, all the nations will be gathered into that Jerusalem, unto the throne of the Lord. Terry, how are we going to get all of the nations on the hill of Zion? How are we going to get all of the nations in that temple on Mount Zion? I don't think it's referring to the earthly temple. What is it referring to then? Heavenly, heavenly Jerusalem. To the heavenly Jerusalem where those out of every nation, tribe, and tongue from all of the nations will come to that sacred mount. So this projection is not a projection of the restoration of Israel and Judah to Palestine or Jerusalem. It's not a millennial projection because you can't fit the nations into it. All the nations won't fit on that mountaintop. And so if we're going to be very literal about this passage, we have to have a place, we have to have a dimension, we have to have an arena where those from all the nations will fit. And that glorious general assembly, that general assembly of the firstborn, that new Jerusalem, that is a spiritual, that is a heavenly, that is an eschatological Jerusalem. All right. And the throne of the Lord, verse 17, the throne of the Lord is referred to in Hebrews 12, 2, where Jesus himself is seated at the right hand of the throne of the Lord. Revelation 7, 15, 22, 1 and 3, those passages talking about the throne of the Lord in the heaven of heavens, in the invisible and spiritual heavens, not upon the earth in Jerusalem of Palestine or Israel, either today or or future. All right, so <clears throat> this section is then uh, pressing us into the eschatological future, and that's the reason we have here the first glimmer of the eschatology of Jeremiah, which will be filled out in Jeremiah 23 and further filled out in Jeremiah 30 through 33. And you know that already. 
you know that Jeremiah 33 is an eschatological provision. It is an eschatological text because Jeremiah 33 is quoted where? It's quoted in Hebrews 8. It's the longest Old Testament quotation in the New Testament. And it's a quotation about the new covenant which has come in the great high priest who is Christ Jesus, the great priest after the order of Melchizedek. You've been through that in our studies on the epistle to the Hebrews. We've looked at that passage of Hebrews 8 in terms of the eschatological covenant. That is not a covenant with an earthly people per se, but a covenant in Christ with a people who are bound and belong to heaven and to the age to come. So that comes from this a central section of Jeremiah. We begin then with a, a description of Jeremiah's eschatology in chapter 3. We're not going to see very much more of it until chapter 23. Then we're going to have a long section of it, of four chapters in chapters 30 to 33. And then we will wait for the New Testament to show its realization and effectuation. But you stand in it already. You stand in it already by coming at the invitation of the Lord, by trusting him for salvation, for receiving from him a new heart, from being given a citizenship in that Jerusalem where the throne of the Lord is established, for being one out of the nations of the Gentiles, Jew and Gentile alike, who have come up to that Jerusalem above, which is the mother of us all. Any questions about that? Well, in conclusion then, we have explored the matter of the narrative voice or the narrative voices in this series on Jeremiah. We observed the narrative dialogue between the Lord God and his prophet servant whom he commissioned in chapter 1, the narrative voice of God and the prophet Jeremiah. Chapter 2 unfolds the sin of Israel and Judah as God the Lord proclaims his coming judgment against adulterous idolatry. In that chapter, the voice of the prophet Jeremiah is subsumed under the voice of God while the voice of a rebellious and whorish people is embedded in their devotion to vile and depraved idol worship. Chapter 3 continues the pattern of the three narrative voices of chapter 2. God the Lord, Jeremiah his spokesman, and the people Israel, Judah, in context, God speaks in verses 6 to 11 of this third chapter. Jeremiah and the people are passive listeners, auditors of the word of God's condemnation. 
God continues to speak in verses 12 to 20. But we notice a change. We notice a change in the audible voices. We hear God's voice immediately in verse 12. Go. But it is joined to a directive for another voice to mimic his own voice. Proclaim. You proclaim. The voice is the narrative voice of identification. God the Lord in Jeremiah. You proclaim these words. And Jeremiah in God the Lord declares the Lord. The words Jeremiah narrates are the words God the Lord has placed in his mouth. Remember chapter 1, verse 9. And that underscores the reciprocal narrative identity of God with Jeremiah. Remember the Emmanuel motif of chapter 1, verse 19. I am with you. The mirror identification of the voice of the Lord and the proclamation of his servant prophet embodies or incarnates the historical projection of the eschatological benediction of grace, embodies or incarnates the historical projection of the Davidic shepherd, a new Jerusalem, a reunited people of God from all nations, reunited in repentance, in faith, in devotion, saying unto the Lord their God, My Father, my Heavenly Father, my beloved Father in Heaven, Father of grace and salvation and restoration and benediction. And that is the voice of verses 22c through 25. It is the voice of a redeemed people who have been effectually changed, effectually saved, redeemed, transformed by the word of the Lord in the mouth of his servant prophet, the narrative voice, the three narrative voices, God the Lord, his prophet, a sinful yet redeemed people embodied as one voice, in the shepherd of the new Jerusalem. Let us pray. Father, how we thank you that the voice of Jeremiah is your voice. The voice of your dear son in the fullness of time. A voice which joins the voices of a sinful and fallen people in repentance and grace to your own invitation, your eschatological declaration, joins their voices in exaltation and exhilaration 
as they confess the shame of their sin and transgression and hold fast to that eschatological David who is seated in that heavenly Jerusalem at the right hand of the throne of the Lord and through whom each one is enabled effectually to say, Abba, Father. We ask your blessing upon this word from your servant of old, who is the mere projection and anticipation, yea, the embodiment of that last and great servant of the Lord, your own incarnate Son. Enable us, O Lord, to see and to love and to delight in the Lord Jesus, who is greater than Jeremiah, because he is very God of very God. We thank you in his precious name. Amen.